You're tuned in to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and this episode of our program brings you Dr. Gabor Mate, physician, author, keynote speaker, educator, and activist. Dr. Maté takes a big-picture, mind-body approach to healing. For 20 years, he was a family physician in private practice. For seven years, he was a medical coordinator in the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital. Now, he is the staff physician at the Portland Hotel, a residence and resource center in Vancouver's downtown east side, the most concentrated area of hardcore drug use in North America. Gabor Maté is the author of When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress. Scattered Minds, a new look at the origins and healing of attention deficit disorder, and in the realm of hungry ghosts, close encounters with addiction. So glad you can be with us. What's your understanding of what it takes to really nurture and nourish the whole person? What we have to understand is that people don't develop in isolation or according to a strict genetic program. The UCLA psychiatrist, Daniel Siegel, speaks about interpersonal neurobiology, which means to say that a person's um, brain and nervous system functions in interaction with the emotional and social environment. I would take it a step further and talk about interpersonal biology because this is true for our entire physiological and psychological and neurological development. Hence, uh, how people develop depends very much on the kind of environment in which they are conceived and carried in utero and then are born into and spend their formative years in. So the more stress there is in the environment, the more disconnection and dysfunction there is in the environment, the more problems that person will expect them to um, have all their lives. Contrary-wise, the more uh, peace there is, the more connection there is, the more mindful awareness there is on the part of the individuals looking after the child or, or caring for the child, the more chances are of a person who's balanced, grounded, and capable of living a full life. Do you want to say something about attunement? This is a concept that might not be known to everyone. The love that a parent feels is not necessarily what a child experiences. Uh, children actually need to be connected with in a special way, which has been called attunement. And attunement means essentially being in tune with or being on the same wavelength with. When one person is attuned with another, it means that they get the other person's emotional state, they share that state, and they communicate that they share that state. So that with a baby who's crying, one wouldn't be giving them reassuring statements about how it can't be so bad. We pick them up and we basically make a sad face ourselves to indicate that, you know, we get it, baby, you're sad, and... I'm sad that you're sad, and I'm telling you that I'm sad that you're sad. When we're attuned with, when we're mirrored like that, then we relax because we're understood and we feel safe. And that's important all our lives, but it's especially important for the developing child. Now, parents who are stressed or depressed may love their kids or who are distracted by their life or their workaholism or their responsibilities um, may love their kids as much as anyone, but they're not able to attune with the child. They're not able to share with and respond to the emotional states of the child. And that creates a huge problem for a lot of kids in our culture. And by the way, that attunement is not just a psychological need. It's actually uh, a need for the essential physiological development of the important brain circuits. Why is this low stress and attuned environment 
so critical in early childhood for embryos, fetuses, infants, and young children. What's happening? What is known now, without any shadow of a doubt whatsoever, is that the human brain develops an interaction with the environment. The circuits that get the appropriate input will develop, and the ones that don't get the appropriate input will not develop. To give you a clear example, a child with perfectly good eyes at birth but thrust into a dark room for five years, will be blind thereafter for the rest of his life because the circuits of vision require light waves. In the same way, the essential circuits of emotional self-regulation, the circuits that help us modulate and uh, create our relationships, our circuits of pleasure and reward, uh, the opiate circuits and the brain, the endorphin circuits, our pleasure of in- our circuits of incentive and motivation, the dopamine circuits, all of which are impaired, for example, in kids with ADD or, for example, with a- in addicts, they also need the right environment. And the right environment is that uh, provided by a non-stressed, attuned, emotionally available, and consistently available parenting caregiver. And if we're seeing so much dysfunction now amongst our children these days, and if we're seeing all the millions of kids on medications mm-hmm. and all the burgeoning and preponderance of childhood disorders, it's not because there's something genetically has all of a sudden befallen the population, some genetic disaster, but because so few parents are now able to provide that attuned, non-stressed, connected environment for no fault of their own. That's just a result of what we like to call progress, but really what it has been is a, a disconnection that people are experiencing increasingly because of the breakdown of the usual structures uh, in which kids used to grow up, which is to say that the clan, the family, the extended family, the neighborhood, the tribe. The natural birth, the breastfeeding, right? Yeah, the, the medicalization of childbirth, the 30% or higher cesarean section rate so that people no longer are pushing babies out the way they're meant to, uh, the uh, the drugs that are given during labor, the uh, the taking away of infants from their mothers at birth and uh, their, their subjection to medical procedures, then the fact that kids no longer grow up on their parents because parents often have to work from the child's very early age onwards. I mean, all these, and then they're doing so with less support because grandparents, grandmothers, uncles and aunts are no longer around even because of the social economic dislocation of people. All of these things have combined and conspired to create an environment for child rearing that's completely non-natural and highly stressed. And the results are the many troubled kids who are entering our school systems these days. And if we're looking at a spectrum, which I think we have been, all the way at the most difficult end of the spectrum are the hardcore drug addicts, and you're working with this population now. So what are the kinds of things that are happening to these folks in their early development, and what are the repercussions of those? When you look at the patients that I work with, which is in Vancouver's downtown east side, Vancouver's downtown east side is notorious as North America's most concentrated area of drug use. If I look at these people and their life histories, or if I look at the large-scale population studies that have been done in the United States on hardcore drug addicts, what uh, emerges over and over again is that the more adversity there is in one's childhood, the greater the risk of addiction. Now, the adversity in my patients is very clear. They were all abused as kids without exception. So essentially, I'm dealing with a population who began life as abused and neglected children. And uh, given what I've said about brain development, it's clear that as I say in one chapter of my book, these people's brains never had a chance. 
uh, to develop properly. If you look at the American studies, which are known as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, or ACEs, again, they clearly show that the greater the childhood adversity, the greater risk not only of addiction, by the way, but also of obesity, also of heart disease, high blood pressure, cancer, and a whole range of disorders. So that, again, that early interpersonal biology of people, when they're partially affected by their environment, that will have an impact on their health throughout their life. And specifically in the case of addiction, it sets up their brain in such a way as that individuals are almost programmed to be an addict later on. Would you say then that instead of talking about stress, in these cases we're talking about repeated trauma, that, that you're taking stress more to an extreme? Yes, these people are traumatized. The ACE studies call them adverse childhood experiences. They don't use the word trauma. They say adverse childhood experiences. But we're talking about one and the same thing. So in the case of the um, long-term studies, uh, a rancorous divorce, for example, which we don't usually think of as trauma, but it is traumatic to the child, a rancorous divorce I'm talking about, the death of a parent, a parent being addicted, a parent being abused by the other, a child being abused, a parent being jailed. These are all considered to be traumatic events for the child. And on top of that, of course, the common story with my patients is very direct physical and sexual abuse. Are there particular underlying emotions then that the addict is, you know, forever then trying to deal with in themselves? And what would those be? Uh, despair, for one. There's an underlying despair, uh, a sense of um, hopelessness about life being okay without the drug. There is uh, emotional isolation because uh, that's what they've experienced. So very often the drugs are actually taken in order to connect the person to another person or to other people. There is um, lack of uh, confidence in the self. There's a deep sense of worthlessness, which is very straightforward because when a child is treated badly, the conclusion that more often than not they come to is that if I receive this kind of treatment, it's because I'm a very flawed and worthless and unlovable individual. So there's a deep loathing for the self. Those are the underlying emotions behind any addiction. And, of course, there's just a desperation to escape. How about rage? Well, yeah, there's tremendous anger in these people. However, that anger is sometimes turned against the self in the form of the self-loathing that I talk about. And sometimes it's just underneath the surface. And very often the opiate drugs actually soothe that rage. The stimulant drugs will, of course, make it worse. You talked so much about repressed anger in when the body says no. I wonder if we can segue into that. Please speak about how repressed childhood emotions, and specifically anger, is held in the body and the many ways it can manifest as disturbance and disease in the adult. Well, uh, if you look at the studies again, uh, the more childhood adversity, the greater risk of disease in adulthood. In a Canadian study just last year, if a child was abused, his risk of cancer is 50% greater than average. Now, I'm talking about abuse as being the template for heavy addictions, and childhood stress as also being a template for disease. What's the connection? Well, again, if a child has negative experiences in childhood, there's a limited number of ways they can respond. One way is to try and soothe the pain through the addiction. Another is to try to compensate somehow. In other words, if I believe that I'm worthless, one way that I can compensate is to be very useful to people. How do I become useful to people? By suppressing my own needs and meeting theirs. 
and people that suppressed it. And also, I will, if I'm very unhappy, uh, but people, my parents aren't able to hear that unhappiness, then I will pretend to be happy and I'll suppress my negative emotions, the so-called negative emotions like anger and sadness and so on. And I'll be this nice, happy person all the time, which means that I'm not actually dealing with what's troubling me. Now, these patterns of emotional repressions then uh, in people who are very, very nice, people who are very dutiful, who are forever trying to please others, afraid of disappointing anybody else, never expressing negative feelings, then these are the people then who classically get chronic illness like cancer, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, colitis, Crohn's disease, ALS, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, I could go on, chronic asthma, psoriasis, and so on. And you'll never talk to anybody with these conditions who don't have these emotional patterns. And it doesn't necessarily go back to abuse in every case. I mean, abuse makes it all worse, but it just has to be the child's sense that the parent is too stressed to listen to him. So once the child senses that the parent is too stressed to be there for the child, then the child wants to maintain a relationship with the parent and emotionally starts taking care of the parent by suppressing their own needs. As soon as you do that, that then becomes a personality trait, which then causes you to suppress yourself all your life until you become aware of it, and that's the template for disease. Reading these two books so close together, it really caused me to question whether addiction isn't just one of many coping mechanisms that the human being comes up with to deal with these highly stressful conditions so far from the ideal of what our spirit is longing for. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Dr. Vincent Felitti, F-E-L-I-T-T-I, he's an American researcher and medical doctor, actually, who was one of the people who conducted those adverse childhood experience studies that I mentioned. Uh, he works with Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, and he said, dismissing addictions as bad habits or self-destructive behavior comfortably hides their functionality in the life of the addict. In other words, he's asking, what function is the addiction playing in the person's life? And just as you suggested, it's a coping mechanism. So the first question in addiction is, what is the addict trying to cope with? And what they're trying to cope with is overwhelming pain. Or they're trying to cope with a whole lot of uh, pseudo or medical conditions like ADHD or depression and anxiety. And these drugs are self-medicating those various conditions. But fundamentally, it's all about emotional pain. And the addictions are a way of getting through life. That's all they are. So rather than condemning people or, or judging them and, and telling them to make better choices which if they could, they would. You simply have to ask, first of all, what is the function of the addiction? What coping mechanism is the addiction um, supporting or, or, or being in that person's life? I know that you mentioned more than once that this Cartesian mind-body split view that has dominated Western medicine that there's a lot of research in endocrinology, neuroscience, and other fields taking a much more holistic view. We've got these words like biopsychosocial and psychoneuroimmunology that reflect this, right? But the paradigm shift is not mainstreaming that quickly. So you know a lot about this. I wonder if you could just talk with us about it. 
Well, of course, ancient um, shamanic practices throughout the world, as well as the uh, energy ministry of China, and not to mention the Ayurvedic medicine of India, have always taken for granted that mind and body can't be separated. And homeopathy. And homeopathy. Oh, of course. I'm, I'm talking about even ancient practices, but, you know, homeopathy and naturopathy and so on. And for some reason, for, well, for certain reasons in the West, that has always been a hard sell. However, um, even in Western medicine, in 1892, William Mosler, who was a great medical teacher, well-known at Johns Hopkins, but also at McGill, Canada, and knighted by Queen Victoria in, in, in England, said, for example, that rheumatoid arthritis is a nervous system disorder. In other words, he wasn't looking at the joints. He was saying it had to do with stress and worry. So Osler, in 1892, still had that wisdom. At that time, he had no science whatsoever to prove it. He just had his intuition. So we used to have wisdom without science. Now, 100 years later, or 120 years later, we have science without wisdom. You're listening to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm here with pioneering author, keynote speaker, and physician, Dr. Gabor Mate. <laughs> so even though we have the scientific proofs now that Osler was completely correct, and we have the scientific proof now that the traditional understanding that mind and body are separable was absolutely correct, even though it has been incontrovertibly proven that the emotional centers in the brain are not to be separated from the immune system or from the hormonal glands or from the uh, nervous system, medicine still practices that these systems are somewhat separate. It's as if, as if as in physics we had developed a quantum physics, but we're still practicing Newtonian physics. Essentially, we are 100 years behind, or in this case, several decades behind. But for some reason, the new science that shows, for example, epigenetics, that shows that genes are turned on and off by the environment, is not taught in the medical schools yet. Psychoimmunology that brings together uh, the knowledge that emotions and nerves and hormones and, and uh, immune cells can't be separated, but they're serving one function and they work together essentially as part and parcel of one super system and biopsychosocial nature of development, which is to say that human beings' biology is shaped by the social and psychological environment. These are all now elegantly worked out, but the medical schools behave as if they have never happened. Okay, why? Well, you know, the tendency is to think of conspiracies and so on, and one might almost believe it, but I don't. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. First of all, uh, the research that doctors engage in is for the most part funded by pharmaceutical companies. Now, there's lots of research about new tr drugs for cancer which extend your life by a month, you know, and, and uh, billions of dollars are spent on that stuff. But there's no money to be made in helping people understand their stresses and mm -hmm. how their stresses are actually creating their malignancy. Who's going to make money off that? There's no product you can sell. So that research is not funded. And the doctors who do the research, who teach in the medical schools, just aren't aware of it, number one. Number two, every profession that has got a powerful ideological position worked out over time tends to be very conservative and defensive around that ideological position. The medical profession is an extremely conservative one. And I don't just mean politically and when it comes to healthcare policy, although sadly there too. 
but I'm talking just in ideologically and, and, and um, intellectually. It's a very conservative profession. And every little department hangs on desperately to its share of hours that it has to devote to medical students. And no one wants to give up any hours to teach the new science because that would deprive them of their precious power. So Is it power addiction then? It's power, it's intellectual conservatism, it's the fear of the new, and it's just lack of awareness of what's outside your own particular field. There's a tremendous specialization, of course. And money, you know, I mean, it would mean perhaps a shift not only of power, but of resources. It would require, first of all, a shift of consciousness, I think. And um, and as long as people are attached to their little domains, it's very difficult to make changes. Not having said that, of course, there are people who are making a difference. Uh, certainly, somebody like Deepak Chopra, and I don't want to agree with him on everything, but he's somebody out there who's talking about the unity of things in a way that most doctors are not. Andrew Weil, who talks about the importance of nutrition and, 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 and holistic medicine, uh, again, is another one. And, and there are others. So that uh, not that these voices are never heard, but they're still not heeded in the mainstream medical schools. Right. They're still marginalized as, oh, yeah, all those New Age people. But at the same time, I have to tell you that in my own work, I've had very encouraging responses from many, many doctors, both from the States and Canada. I get more and more listening from doctors than I did, say, some years ago. So that I, I think I can report. And, and then the public, of course, is very eager for this information because people intuitively know yeah. that, the, that isolating things just doesn't work and that they're not being served. And not only that, they experience uh, at their own expense just how limited the uh, traditional medical approaches are. Do you see relationships between addictive behavior, which I just want our listeners to know, goes far beyond hardcore or illicit drug use. Maybe you want to talk about how many different ways people can have addictive behavior in their well, life. As, as many as there are human beings. The point is that any behavior can become addictive. The issue is not the behavior. The issue is your relationship to that behavior. So my definition of addiction is any behavior that you crave and seek pleasure in that has negative consequences on your life, on your personal life, emotional life, relationships, physical health, spiritual advancement, and so on. But you persist in it and crave it and relapse into it despite those negative consequences. Hence, one could be a conscientious worker or one could be a workaholic. And from the outside, you couldn't even tell. It depends on the individual's individual relationship to it and what role it plays in their life. One could love classical music like I do, or you could be a a compulsive and addictive shopper for classical music, as I have been. One could um, play poker with friends, or one could be a gambling addict. One could have a wine, uh, one glass of wine every night with dinner, or one could be an alcoholic. So it's not the um, behavior per se, it's the one's relationship to it. And when you look at the brain, the biology of addiction, and you look at the spiritual void at the heart of all addictions, and you look at the psychological dynamics of all addictions, it's all the same, regardless of the external target. So whether you're a sex addict or a, or a work addict or, a, or an extreme sports addict or a cocaine addict, it's the same brain circuits and the same needs that are being served. So tell us about free will and free won't. Yeah, the um, 
the naive, the naive assumption under, um, of course, the Reagan administration was, and as, as popularized by Nancy Reagan in her billboards across the states, was just say no. And the assumption there is that the addict can just do that. They can just say no. If you actually look at the brains of drug addicts in particular, uh, you'll find that the most common brain scan finding is that the structure in the brain that is supposed to regulate the no, that is supposed to inhibit the negative impulses, or the harmful impulses, just doesn't work very well. So in other words, if somebody astutely said the problem in addiction is not lack of free will, but lack of free won't, the addict's brain just can't say no that easily because the very organ that is supposed to do so is impaired. And so, if we want to provide people with uh, freedom of choice, it's not simply enough to say to them, just make the right decision. You actually have to provide them the conditions where their brains can heal so they can make the right and the appropriate decisions. And that isn't stress and punishment and uh, judgment, but actually uh, compassionate understanding. So given the ecological crises we're facing globally, but mostly coming from contemporary Western society, do you look at the relationships between what you have studied about addictive behavior, denial, being adverse to self-inquiry, and do you make a connection between the addict and the way we're behaving vis-a-vis the scientific information that's coming out? The New York Times just a couple of weeks ago, they said that probably one-third or a quarter of TV weather reporters don't accept the data on global warming. Now, it's difficult to look at the scientific information. It's difficult to look at the the new study this this weekend that the oceans are getting more acidic. It's difficult to look at the melting of the polar cap and the, the polar ice cap in the north. And all the information that we've had from around the world and not conclude that anybody who doesn't get it is just in denial. And the same is true of many, many issues, of course, that the media is very often fulfilled the function of denial. And when we look at what we're denying, is what we're denying is, which is, of course, addicts do. Addicts are always in denial. I mean, that's just one tendency. When I had addictive behaviors, I tended to deny them, uh, both to myself, first of all, and, and then to people in my life. Now, as a society, when we're addicted to a lifestyle that actually damages the environment, well, the one way to maintain that lifestyle is to be in denial about the facts around that. So, essentially, I'm saying, and not only I, but other people have pointed it out, that it's a highly addicted society. In other words, as a society, we carry out many behaviors that are harmful to us and to our children, pollution, for example. But because we're too attached to the the goods and services that we're craving and the possessions that we all want to be attached to, we're denying the effect. Now, how is that different from the individual addict who injects something or or drinks too much and is in denial about it? It's not any different at all. And part of the reason I think that we judge addicts so harshly is because they represent something that we clearly don't like about ourselves or we don't want to admit. So we have scapegoat the, uh, the, the addict. I think that's a very important message. And my next question is, do drug addicts tend to die young? What's the lifespan of this population? Are they dying prematurely? If you see the 
survival of your clients is one measure of how successful you are as a doctor, then I'd have to judge a complete failure. Because my patients die quite young. They die of overdoses in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. They die of HIV and hepatitis C, and they die of the many infections that injection drug use can cause. They die of uh, suicide. They die of violence. And they die because of all the effects of their childhood trauma. So these people do have a shorter life. By the way, that's just not my personal impression. But again, if you look at the large-scale American adverse childhood experiences studies, people with many childhood experiences tend to die suddenly as many as 20 years earlier than somebody who did not have those experiences. So and I'm not even talking about addicts. So the preponderance of childhood experiences simply increase your or decrease your lifespan by decades, let alone when it comes to the hardcore addicts. So what concerns me is we've already made the strong connection about our society, our contemporary society, and what concerns me is that our species will die prematurely, and I'm just wondering what the potential treatment for that is. You say, you say raising of consciousness. Perhaps you want to talk about that a little bit. How might that happen? Well, the good news is, is that I was at a conference in Whitehorse, Yukon, in northern Canada, just this last weekend. And I was giving a workshop and a woman on stress and, and, and illness and so on, and addiction. And a woman stood up, was a native Canadian woman, who, uh, an Aboriginal Canadian woman, native Indian, you might say. She was 59, and she's an addict all her life, and she's been on a healing path since age 52. And now she's trying to connect with... And she's had two of her children die, one of an overdose, one was killed in prison. The typical um, tragic trajectory of our Aboriginal population, a heavily abused population, abused historically by society. And their children are often, for, for generations, forced to go into these residential schools where the churches took charge of these kids. Children weren't allowed to see their parents. They were beaten up for speaking their own language. Their hair was cut. Mm-hmm. Their native way were discouraged. They were a, diff- a, a strange religion was forced upon them, and they were sexually abused generation after generation. So the trauma in that population is severe, severe. And many of my patients in the downtown east side of Vancouver are First Nations origin. But this woman, the very trembling voice, talked about her own experience, about how her own children have died and how the remaining children won't have anything to do with her and now she's got a granddaughter who won't even talk to her. And she's wondering how to connect. And uh, because she wants to save the granddaughter. And, um, of course, what was astonishing about it that here she's at age 59. She began the healing path seven years ago. And what a miracle that is. In other words, there was something in her all those years that despite all the trauma... And despite all the personal tragedy that she had uh, suffered, despite all the addictions, there was still something in her that was capable of healing and capable of seeking a path towards the light. And that's true of all human beings. So I don't despair personally of human beings because I think there's something more powerful in us than our dysfunctions and more powerful in us than our denials and more powerful in us than our attachments and our addictions and that is our wholeness and our 
inner light, and I don't want to get too mystical about it, because um, I've never had mystical experiences, but I do see it in people, and I saw it in this woman, and I certainly have experienced it in myself, and so that people have the capacity to heal, and that, if that's true of individuals, it's also true of societies. And so um, I think people that see the truth, they must continue to speak it, because that truth resonates with others who may not have articulated it yet, but it's still inside them. I'm very optimistic about people on the long term, because I've seen people who you never expect to, to heal or to recover do so. Well, that, that tells me that human beings are far more than our external behaviors and our negative emotions. You're listening to The Living Hero Podcast at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we are hearing the compassionate and wise words of Dr. Gabor Mate, who recently published his fourth book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. You have written about the divine feminine and caritas, divine love. Uh, but being a female person certainly doesn't guarantee that that's there. I live in New York City now, and I see around me all the time in grocery stores, in the street, in the park, mothers doing a lot of damage, you know, in, inadvertently. So for you, what would it mean for the feminine principle that you have in mind, this divine feminine, to really come front and center in our hurting world? Because they pay attention to themselves, I think. I think most mothers who are capable of paying attention to themselves will be in touch with that healing and nurturing feminine principle, by the way, which isn't a gender-related issue. I mean, we call it feminine, but really it's in men and women both. Women, I think, are closer in touch with it for a whole lot of reasons, but it's not gender-specific. I don't know quite how to answer your question, but I think that happened. All I can do, like others do, is to speak my particular truth, and I know I get a very warm response from a lot of people to what I have to say and what I have to write. And um, everybody, you and everybody else who's engaged in this work and sees something beyond the mundane and beyond the ordinary needs to just be pointing to that and speaking it out and, and to encourage people to keep checking in themselves and to trust what's inside of themselves. Most mothers who trust their gut feelings will make the right decisions mm-hmm. as opposed to when they listen to experts. Experts will tell them to use timeouts against their kids and to punish their kids and not to pick up babies when they're crying because you're supposed to help them sleep through the night. The mother's intuition is to love the kid, to pick the child up when he's crying, not to separate from the child. People need to follow their intuition. In my mind, it, it's about finding some safe place, even if it's only drawn from one's own strength, but some place to foster sensitivity because if we've been shot down or damaged in some way, in our childhood, we're protected. There's a shell. It's protection against that sensitivity, but it's that very sensitivity and vulnerability that needs to be present to really be attuned to other people and to listen to ourselves. So that's where I think the work is, is to find that respite, to let that sensitive person come forward again. Well, absolutely. And if I may add another word to that... There's a lot of concern these days about resilience and how to help people be resilient. Well, that hardening, that shell that you just described, is the very opposite of resilience. Because when people become hard, 
they can't be resilient. They become rigid, then you're no longer resilient. So resilience itself requires that, that, that we, as much as possible, see paths and drop our hardened shells. And that's the task of maturation. Unfortunately, when people have been hurt in childhood, they tend to become rigid to protect themselves, and as they do, they, they, they lose their resilience. I've seen in my own work, though, even people who are very defended, when they get in a small group of people and a really safe space is created and people start telling their stories and listening to each other and laughing and crying with each other, amazing things take place. People have breakthroughs very quickly when they can just find a little bit of light. You know, there's a spiritual teacher, A.H. Almas, who wrote in one of his books, that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. But when compassion is present, then people will drop their defenses and they will drop their rigidity and they will soften up and they'll have their tears and they'll have their joy and they'll become resilient again and they'll become um, themselves again. And I've seen that too. And it, and it doesn't take long either. It doesn't take much. It just takes the capacity to be with people in a compassionate and pleasant way. And this can happen even while somebody's still addicted to something. Yes, absolutely it can. And, and, and when you look at addicts and you ask them, what is it that helped you overcome the addiction? Almost invariably, they'll tell you, it was the presence of somebody who listened to me and who got me. So I really think that's the place to work. I mean, the highly sensitive type of person tends to become scapegoated in our society, you know. like That's, that's my next book on bullying, actually. Is it? No kidding. Do you know the work of Robert Sutton? He wrote a book called The No Asshole Rule, <laughs> and he talks about bullies in the workplace. Somebody sent me this title because he thought that that's where he read about the high rates of psychopathology in high places. Absolutely, and of course, the, the modus operandi of the bully is to attack somebody's vulnerability. So the more sensitive somebody is, the more vulnerable they are. So sensitive people tend to get bullied. Also, the bully themselves are people who have been badly hurt, so that it, there's not as much distinction between the bully and the victim as we imagine. They look very different on the outside. But if you look at why somebody becomes a bully, it's because they've been hurt themselves. Sure, the victim becomes the perpetrator. And that's, I think, just a, a really important study. And for you to expose that in the compassionate way that you do... That well, book will be called The Bully Syndrome. And I'm, I'm writing that with a friend of mine with whom I'd written the previous book. It's called Hold On To You Kids, Why Parents Need To Matter More Than Peers. And it's about how in our culture, because of the loss of adult connections, kids have become too connected to one another. And the disaster, of course, that follows when immature creatures become each other's models. And so this book on bullying is also written with that friend whose name is Gordon Neufeld. Do you have a pub date for that? In Canada, we do. We expect it to be published in 2011. I have to write it first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm desperately behind deadline. But, um, and I expect it to be published in the States probably the next year as well. I happen to notice that you didn't use certain words in your books. Uh, you didn't use the word narcissism. You didn't talk about uh, arrested development or hypervigilance. But I was thinking of these words repeatedly while reading your text, and I was wondering if these were labels you purposely avoid or um, if you have interest in narcissism as a syndrome. 
there's a certain stage of development when everybody's a narcissist, and that's about a year and a half, two years. At that stage, you believe that uh, the whole world revolves around you. What else could a kid believe, you know? He as much as expresses a bit of hunger, and the mother comes running with food. And it has to be that way. That's a healthy stage of development. So there's a certain point where we think we're the center of the universe, which is the narcissist. Now, it's only, I don't talk about narcissists too much because we use, all these terms become pejoratives in our culture. When you talk about somebody who's a narcissist, it's a put-down. But actually what's really going on is a narcissist is somebody whose needs were not met in that narcissistic stage of development, so they get stuck in that stage. So any, any stage of development where your needs are not met, you're stuck in it. So why put people down as narcissists? In other words, I just rather look at what happened to them and see where they're stuck rather than label them with, with a, a phrase that has taken on pejorative connotations. There's a lot of people out there, of course, who in that, by strict definition, are narcissists. I have to say, I myself have been quite a narcissist in my life. But it doesn't describe who they are. It just says something about how they've learned to cope with life. So when you do talk about brain development and people being stuck and not having moved through stages of development, it's really saying the same thing, but not using the label. That's absolutely correct. We're getting close to the end of our time, and I want to give you the opportunity to say anything else to our listeners that you have in mind lately. What are you thinking about most these days? What I'm thinking about most these days is how to start following some of my own advice. Not working quite so much and not taking on quite so much. You know what I'm mostly thinking about these days? I'm going to a conference this coming weekend. There's an article in the New York Times today. Today is April the 12th. On the front page of the New York Times today, there's an article on psychedelics and healing. I read it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to that conference in San Jose that that article uh, described. And I've been working with a, a Peruvian shamanic plant myself in helping people heal from addiction and also stress. What is that? Ayahuasca? That's correct. I've done some workshops with it. Uh, quite astonishing work. And I was recently done in Peru learning about it. So that's what I'm most excited about these days. The possibility of moving people quickly past their patterns and compulsions and, and, and negative or self-harming beliefs that they're stuck in. So all the work that I do is about liberation. Liberation from what? From what the Swiss uh, psychotherapist and writer Alice Miller called being prisoners of childhood because we're all prisoners of these patterns that we develop as kids, as defenses, then they become our personalities, and then we think that's who we are, and then we are stuck following addictive patterns and compulsive, non-self-supporting um, behaviors. So we all have to liberate ourselves from the past in that sense, and all the spiritual work, all the spiritual teachers, modern or ancient, we're all about helping us be liberated from the patterns, the unconscious ones that we're stuck in. And so this conference in San Jose is just another attempt to move that work forward. So that's what I'm most excited about these days. Experimenting with ayahuasca and other psychedelics, you're sure to have mystical experience. I'm surprised that you didn't say that you already had. Because well, I did, but I did. what I meant to say is I didn't have it. On my own, but I have with the ayahuasca. Oh, yes. Given what you write about and, and the way you speak, I would have been surprised if you hadn't. But to tell you the honest truth, though, when I wrote my, finished writing my most recent book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which you read, I hadn't yet had those experiences. I was speaking more from an intuitive understanding than from direct experience. Since then, I've had 
It was only since then that I began to do the shamanic work. Well, that is astonishing. Well, you you have that connection. You've been living with it all along. It's just, I guess, becoming stronger and stronger. But you certainly have spoken from that understanding of oneness. Well, uh, without knowing it, but all my life I've been looking for it. Well, I'm so happy for you that you're experiencing it more and more. And uh, just keep giving us your words and experiences because they really go a long way. Thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you. Special thanks for today's program go to audio engineer Charles de Montebello of CDM Studios, New York. Living Hero is a production of In This Regard, a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, which serves as our nonprofit umbrella. We receive funding and in-kind contributions from the Puffin Foundation and from listeners like you. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Please help us continue to offer and grow this program. To access our archive of interviews, to post your comments, and to help us fund future programs, visit us at livinghero.com. Thanks for listening.